Thanks, Terry. Um, good evening. Uh, welcome, Gospel in the World weekend. Uh, it's the beginning of uh, a weekend, so I emphasize the word weekend to you uh, because we're meeting tonight, um, and then we'll meet again in the morning. Uh, we'll say this again at the end, but in the morning we'll have refreshments, very much like what we have on a typical Sunday morning out front here. Uh, Lord willing, um, we're going to have good weather. Uh, at least that's what the forecast is. So from 8.30 to 9, we'll have that. So if you want to come early and uh, fellowship a little bit, and then from 9 to 11.30, um, or however long Ray uh, chooses to go, uh, we will um, be together then. And then on Sunday morning, we'll have our worship services. Uh, we'll take up our uh, sacrificial mission offerings. First time we've done that. Uh, and so I would just remind you of that. You should have received a letter in the last week uh, from Drew explaining all of that, our rationale for that, and how that's going to work. So that'll be in both services. And then the weekend will conclude on Sunday evening at 5, downtown uh, at the park uh, for our corporate prayer time. Okay? So those are our events. Uh, It's the first time we've really ever put it all together in one package like this. So you're the inaugural uh, attendees. You don't get a plaque or a certificate or anything like that. But you get thank you uh, for, for being here. Um, I want to introduce Ray uh, Cortese to you. Ray is uh, the pastor of Seven Rivers uh, Church in Lecanto. Um, if you've never heard of Lecanto, it's in Citrus County. If you've never heard of Citrus County, um, well, look it up. Um, it, it, it's up around the Crystal River, almost has the Springs area, great part of our, uh, of our state. Anyway, he planted that church 30 something, 32 years ago, uh, and they also have uh, Seven Rivers Christian School attached to them, uh, and so Ray comes um, with a lot of pastoral experience, but also at the heart of a church planter, the heart of an evangelist, um, and, and, and the heart of the, the kind of person that we want to be, and, and, and the kind of residue, I would say, we want to spread within our community, and so the gospel in the world is kind of uh, our annual gathering kind of refocus us on that and get us jazzed up for that. And as, as you'll see on the cover of the little handout, if you didn't get one, uh, I'll come around as, as Ray's beginning and, and, uh, and make sure you get one. But it's praying for gospel advance. That's our theme for our, our ministry year, uh, which basically is the school year. Uh, but that's what we've been talking about. That's what we're praying about. That's what we're, 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 we're dreaming about, that we would become a people who pray for gospel advance, that we would become a people who talk about gospel advance with our neighbors and our families and coworkers and so forth, okay? So this is just an annual event to uh, invigorate us to that end, okay? Uh, so would you welcome Ray as he comes? Uh, Ray, thanks for being here.
Yeah, all right. Good. So enough about the uh, gender of your staff people. I won't cover that any further. Um, the, um, the, um, so this, this uh, just kind of reminded me of, uh, of why I'm here, because there's a, you know, here's, a, here's a baseball complex where maybe, sadly, there's no baseball. Um, and, uh, and in so many churches, um, sadly, they've lost the mission. So it's excited to hear that uh, your church uh, wants to be uh, aggressive about the mission. We just hired a new assistant pastor at our church. We have to tell people when we're recruiting, we're not interested in a pastor. Um, we don't want somebody to come and do, teach the Bible and do discipling and hold the hands of elderly people when they die. Um, we want a missionary. We want missionaries. This is a mission. We are a mission. Um, I know we're called the church, but we're a mission. Um, we need to reach people for um, Christ. So don't come and, and whine. We live in a very small community that there's no Starbucks and there's no um, restoration hardware and there's no, we don't even have a Target. Um, well, there we go. Um, don't, uh, but don't, you know, because if you were, um, if you were going to India, um, I doubt you'd, you'd sit around and say, gosh, there's no really hip coffee shops in my neighborhood. There's no, um, you know, there's no shopping. There's no cool places to go, you know, walk your golden retriever around. Um, uh, because we're missionaries. If you're a missionary and you went there as a missionary, you don't expect, it's not your home. You're not looking for uh, amenities like that. You've got a job to do. You're on mission. Um, that's what we have to tell our staff. Um, we just changed our, our school's uh, mission statement from being a covenant school to being what we call a missional model. Covenant school means that to be uh, admitted to the school, one parent has to be a professing uh, believer in Christ. Um, and, uh, and we drop that. Now, um, Whoever brings the kids to the school has to be willing, of course, to be cooperative with the mission of what we're trying to accomplish as a school, but they don't have to be, uh, they don't have to profess faith in Christ. Uh, um, we're, a, we're a missional model. And that had some uh, discord when we moved, when we made that change. And people would say, why are we um, doing that? And it was the same argument. I said, if you go to um, India and you're a missionary... And, uh, and you decide that perhaps a, uh, a, a strategic way to influence the culture and reach people for Christ would be to start a Christian school. Um, would you require, you're in India, would you require that for anyone to put uh, their child in your school that one of the parents has to be a Christian? And everyone looks at you and says, what? Well, no. Well, why, why not? And what's their answer? There aren't any. And I said, so if you go to um, Polk County, Florida, or you go to Citrus County, Florida, and, and you were to start a school because you wanted to reach people for Christ, you wanted to influence the culture, um, would you require a parent to be, um, one parent uh, at least to be a Christian to enroll their child in the school? And, uh, and the answer should be no. And, the, and why? Because there aren't any. There aren't any. There are no more Christians in our culture than there are in most cultures of the world. Um, and until North Americans begin to understand that, begin to look at ourselves as missionaries, you live in a culture that has a dominant religious system that is not your own. Um, and God put you here for a reason. He put you here to be on mission. Got it? So that's where we're going in, uh, in, in my, I'd say, brief time this evening or tomorrow, but actually... Uh, two friends from my uh, church happened to show up tonight, uh, the Polans, and uh, they would uh, call me a liar uh, if, I used the, if I used the word brief for anything. You know, I, I heard a story about the Iditarod. You know what the Iditarod is? It's a, it's a, um, a yeah, Alaskan uh, uh, race, um, mushers and their dog sleds, and they race from uh, Anchorage to Nome, I think it is. Well, where did that all come from? In 1925, there was a diphtheria epidemic in, uh, in Nome. They didn't have inoculation uh, vaccine then for diphtheria, and it was extremely contagious, and it impacted children primarily. And there was a huge outbreak in Nome, and there was um, uh, children were dying, and, there, and, and, and the contagion was spreading. And the serum was in Anchorage. People were dying in Nome. 
And uh, the only way to transport it was they created a relay of dog sleds uh, to take the serum as rapidly as they could. A thousand miles they covered in 127 um, hours. Uh, It's still a record. It's never been broken. They actually called it the Great Race of Mercy. You know, they still do that race every year. But I wonder how many people know why. I wonder how many people know. And that's what it is. So many people go to church and, uh, and they still sing the hymns and they still have choirs and they still uh, have membership classes and they still have kids programs and youth programs and they do all of that. But, but we have the vaccine. And, um, and, uh, and we are called to the great race of mercy. Uh, to get the vaccine to a, to a broken and hurting world. And, uh, and yet there's a lot of uh, churches that I think have completely lost the mission. A lot of believers. So I'm glad to be here. We're going to talk about it. Before I came tonight, I turned on CNN and uh, heard the horrible news in, uh, in, in France. Um, terrorist attack. Some say 35 dead. Some were saying 60 dead. They were even saying 100 dead um, before, uh, before I came Tonight, wouldn't it be great to, to pray together? Father, our world is, um, is horribly broken. And there are um, people who have been great friends of the United States um, that are um, um, suffering. Their country has um, been under attack um, today. And uh, so, Lord, for the leaders of that great uh, land and those great people, we ask for wisdom. Uh, and, Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on... Uh, uh, you would have mercy on uh, folks there who may still be in harm's way. Um, and Lord, rescue them. Cause those who, um, uh, who, who are um, doing evil to be um, defeated, um, we pray. For the sake of, uh, of your kingdom, for the flourishing of, your, uh, of, of, your, of people all over the earth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 13. Uh, starting at the 44th, uh, uh, 13, starting at the 44th verse. It's a series of parables Jesus is uh, telling that are recorded here in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to read three very short parables right in a row, okay? Starting with the parable of the treasure. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And then Jesus tells another parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. And then Jesus tells a third. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full... Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading of his holy, infallible, and inspired word. All right, here's the question before us. Have you found the treasure? Have you found the treasure? I'm going to cut right to the chase because you can't give the treasure to somebody if you don't have it yourself. Okay? Have you found the treasure? Do you have the treasure yourself? You know, it's just um, not unusual for people to come to a point in their life where they say, you know, I sense that there's something more to life that I've yet to discover. There's something missing. Sometimes it happens when you're a child Jessica Lange, the actress, uh, said, as a child, I had an inescapable yearning that nothing could satisfy. There was a yearning, a hole, an emptiness, she said. Nothing could satisfy it. She said, I can remember as a child, my heart aching. Think of college students, um, um, post-college 20-somethings, who can't quite find their career niche, who can't commit to a marriage or or a relationship, um, who face a plethora of choices. And one of the reasons they can't make these um, choices is because they believe that these decisions um, will uh, have something to do with with supplying the something more, something to do with filling 
uh, an emptiness, a longing inside of them. So there's so much pressure that they make the right um, choice. Not unusual at all for people to say, I know there's something more, and I've got to find it um, out there. You see it in retirees. I live in a community filled with retirees. See that retired man, he starts leaving his shirt unbuttoned all the way down to his navel. He's wearing gold chains, you know. He gets a, a fancy car. Uh, or in the villages, you know where the villages is in Central Florida? He gets a souped up a golf cart and um, he trades in his, his uh, starter wife for a new model. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, you, you look on it and, and it's pathetic, isn't it? Uh, now coming towards the end of life and still there's, a, there's an emptiness, a void. Um, looking for something more. I, um, I, um, you know, I think it was Oz Guinness was speaking in, uh, to extremely wealthy businessmen in um, Silicon Valley, and he said that one after another came up to him and said something very much like this. One man said, like many of my friends here, I've learned a lesson I wish I'd known when I started out. Having it all isn't enough. There's a limit to the successes worth counting and the toys worth accumulating. Business school never gave me a calculus for assessing the deeper things of life. The very things we've striven to achieve turned out to be once achieved less than enough. Now there's, these are guys who said, everything I always wanted, I have it. And I have way more. And I'm empty. There has to be something more. It's right in the Bible. A young man came to Jesus, and he said, um, tell me, what do I have to do to to inherit eternal life? Remember what we call him? What did Jesus, what does the Bible call him? The rich young, the rich young ruler. And Jesus' heart is broken because he goes away sad. It's clear that Jesus is telling us that that, that, that something more is the kingdom of God. It's to have your place in the kingdom of God. It's to have the treasure. It's to have found um, the treasure is the something more that we need. I remember a couple years ago, I have a hard time, I was watching the Academy Awards with my wife, and I have a hard time like ruining it for her because I'm so critical sitting there. Of everybody who goes, oh, they are so full of themselves. They are so uh, egocentric. What a narcissist, you know? And uh, so there's Meryl Streep, and there's Angelina Jolie, and there's Brad Pitt, and there's Jay Law. J Lo and there's a um, and they're all there and they're all a Hollywood glitterata you know and they're all in their glamour and finery and they're all successful uber successful off the charts and and uh, in the middle of all of this they gave an award for best documentary which they always do and the documentary that won the award this was like two or three years ago maybe you remember was called something like Twenty Steps from Stardom. And it, and it was essentially about people who were as talented as people in that room. But they just, they were right on the edge of being somebody, being famous, of having made it, of having got into the you know, prominent films and everything. And it, and it just didn't, for whatever reason, it just didn't quite happen for them. So they won the award, you know, and then the, 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 the documentary maker. And, and up when he went to get it, he brought three or four or five of the people that were the subject of the documentary, the people who were just this far from being superstars. And one of them was 72-year-old Darlene Love. And when they presented the award, Darlene Love stood in front of the Academy Awards, and of course they tell you billions and billions watching all over the world, you know, in a yurt in Nepal they're watching. And uh, Darlene stood up and and she started um, singing, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Um, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. And it was so soulful and rich that the entire crowd rose to their feet and roared. And of course, I had to turn to my wife and say, what? They don't even know what they're cheering about. (laughs) It was beautiful, though. She didn't have what they had. But she had the treasure. She had the something more, and she couldn't help but sing about it. So do you have the treasure? Do you have the treasure? So here's what I want you to look at. I have an outline in your, um, 
um, uh, folder. If you fill it out, I understand this is the first year of this event, right? It's a free drawing at the end of, uh, if you've got to come to both sessions tomorrow, if you fill out all three outlines, uh, it's a Hummer giveaway. I think we're giving away a... Um, so, the treasure. First of all, let's talk about the, how the treasure is discovered. Jesus tells us in, in the, these first two parables I read that the treasure is discovered in dissimilar ways. Okay? In, the, in the first, you remember, somebody's working in a field. It's a poor man. He's working in a field because it's not his field. Gives you an idea. He's probably not a person of means. He's working in a field. Imagine him plowing in the field. Imagine he's plowed in that field um, uh, day after day after day, year after year after year. It's like any other day. You know, the, the, the work of, uh, of the drudgery of a, of a farmer, you know, the metronomic sameness of, uh, of, of putting his plow into that dirt and digging that furrow. Only this day, the plow hits something. It doesn't sound like a rock. It sounds distinct. Um, and, and, and he digs down uh, in the, in the uh, dirt, and he discovers a box there, right? Now, it's not unusual um, what, we're about to, what we read happened there because in the ancient world, if you had treasure and you wanted to safeguard it, what would you do with it? Well, they didn't have banks. They didn't have safe deposit boxes. You had to hide it. And you had to hide it where only you knew where it was. And you didn't hide it in your house because if there were brigands or, or uh, whatever, uh, thieves, that, obviously they'd look in your house. That was where they would expect it. So you had to pick a place out on your property, right? That's where you had to dig a hole. And, uh, and that's what happens in this. And by the way, if you think, oh, this is a far-fetched story, did you read just a couple years ago there was a, a retired couple walking on their property in California that they had owned for a number of years, just like two years ago, and they saw like a, a rusty metal can sticking up after like a heavy rain that they just hadn't seen before. It was along the side of the path, dug down, and they found $12 million worth of uh, coins there. I have been taking long walks ever since. <laughs> and uh, got nothing but plantar fasciitis to show for it. But uh, anyway, that's what happens. He, he, he suddenly, um, uh, somebody planted uh, their treasure in a field. And who knows, maybe they were killed suddenly. I mean, maybe they were deported away. I mean, that's the way it was in the ancient world, right? And, uh, and, 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 and so it's, they're not even looking for it, but they found it. And he digs up the box. It's filled with precious jewels and coins. So he quickly puts the box back. It's not his. It's not his field even, right? He buries it. Um, and then he sets off to liquidate everything he can that he might buy that field. Got it? That's how the poor man, he's not even looking and he finds treasure. But then in the second parable Jesus tells was the pearl of great price. In this case, a man is looking. He's a pearl merchant. He knows pearls. He looks every day for pearls. It's his job. It's his business. But he's looking for the pearl. He's looking for the pearl of a lifetime, the pearl of your dreams, right? Um, and, uh, and, and that's what we read in the um, passage. Pearls were the diamonds of the ancient world. I mean, pearls, the, the Cleopatra is considered to have the two most um, valuable pearls ever uh, in existence in the world. This man knows pearls. There's lots of pearls in the market, but when he finds this one, he knows he's got to have it. So I just want to say, it's fascinating the way that people um, find the kingdom of God. Um, some people have a train wreck with the grace and mercy of God, and as far as they know, they are not looking for God. They are not... Um, um, thinking about spiritual things. They're not, um, you know, you take the Apostle Paul. He's on the road to Damascus. He's looking to kill followers of Jesus. He's not looking for God because he thinks he's got him, right? He's not on a search. He's not on a spiritual, he is on a search. He's on a search for Christians to kill, right? Uh, But he's not on a search for God. And bam, God visits uh, um, um, Saul in the middle of the road, right? And arrests him. Uh, blinds him, knocks him down, and that happens in lives. Maybe that's your story, right? God just intervened. He didn't ask your permission, right? A lot of people like to believe in free will. I don't. I don't. God doesn't ask me. Um, if he wants to take over a life, he takes over a life. He doesn't, uh, 
He doesn't ask for permission. Um, uh, last week in church, I preached on Jacob. Jacob's not seeking God. He, he, he's the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. You know, he inherited God. And, um, and uh, he's ripped off his dad. He's ripped off his brother. He's had to run for his life. He's sleeping in the middle of nowhere. He's using a rock for a pillow. Um, and God comes. God comes in his sleep. Um, so you can find God utterly unexpectedly without any, um, just like the man in the field. We, we, a, a woman came to our church and said, I came to Seven Rivers Church because I had four little kids and I knew you preached a long time and so I knew the service was even more than an hour and, and I just wanted free child care for more than an hour. She said, I literally came there to sleep to just have peace. I was coming undone. I had four little children, and, uh, and I needed child care. All four, all four kids are converted. Uh, three of them have graduated from our um, uh, school. The one that hasn't graduated, I'm glad he hasn't. He's 225 pounds. He's a fullback on the football team. He's awesome. And, um, and she's worked on our staff for 12 years now. Um, she came for free child care. Um, one day a woman walked in our church office, came up to the um, receptionist and said, I need, I need to talk to somebody. She's a young woman. She said, I don't even know how to say this without you like calling up the authorities, but I think God talked to me today. And uh, she said, I was just on a walk, and I was just, as I was walking, I was just feeling so, um, so empty. My life is just not going where it needs to go. And she said, and I think God talked to me. Is there somebody who, who could help me figure that out? I mean, do you believe that? She walked in. She came to Jesus that day. She's been a member of our church for 10 or 15 years um, now. So, and, and then you have people, you know, who find the treasure, and they're actively seeking. They try many faiths, many philosophies, many ideologies, and one day God opens their mind to see the treasure, right? See, it's both ways, right? It could be, bam, you're not searching, and, and other people are on a long, long, long um, journey. One young woman wrote, one day I realized Darwinian determinism didn't make any sense. If chimpanzees aren't held accountable for murdering their weak, why should we be? If if godless atheism is true, then bestiality and infanticide is just part of our nature, and letting Nazis gas the infirm or letting starving children die in Africa is just natural because that's the way nature functions. So if there is no God, we shouldn't be bothered by these things, but I'm bothered about them. Letter to Faith in Christ. Whitaker Chambers, remember, famous atheist. You know how he was converted? He was sitting at the breakfast table. And he looked at his daughter. She was eating her porridge for breakfast. He looked at his daughter and he looked at her ear. And he marveled at the engineering and design of his daughter's ear. And it struck him. There is a God. There is a designer. That could not happen uh, through natural selection. Um, listen, I had a guy whose wife got converted in our church. He didn't come for a couple of years. He was a scientist. Thought it was a bunch of hokum. Then she told me one day, she said, I notice that when I come home from church, my Bible's been moved. He tries to put it back in exactly the right spot, she said, but I don't dust, so I can tell, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and she said... Um, so, so I, I remember some months later, all of a sudden, first Sunday of a new year, um, he showed up in church, and I tried not to be like, um, and I said, hey, you know, welcome, and, uh, and I, uh, I, I said, I'm kind of a, a bit taken back that you're here, and, uh, and, and he said, well, listen, I know Christianity isn't true. I suspect he said, you're pretty intelligent. I suspect you know it isn't true either. <laughs> he said, but it's not intellectually honest for me to not really have studied the Bible and make that conclusion. 
I've got to read it, and I've got to hear somebody teach about it. And I'm sure that in a couple months, you'll confirm my conviction that it's not true. Um, And, of course, I'm standing there thinking, uh, he has just signed the death warrant for his unbelief. I remember he told me, you know what he told me? He said, uh, after he was going, uh, uh, he said, I won't be, I went to take him to lunch, and he said, I won't become a Christian until I meet somebody who's given up everything because they're, they've become a follower of Jesus. Until I see that, I don't consider this to be worth my um, uh, time. And we had a missionary come and, and uh, an missions conference, and the missionary told us about the horrific experience he had in Uganda. And, and then at the end of his talk, basically, he said, uh, and I'm going back for another term. And that was it. Not only was the guy converted, but two months later, he was in Uganda building a house for the missionary. Um, so, you know, what's our mission? What's your mission, Redeemer Church? You know where the treasure is. This is a treasure hunt. The world is on a treasure hunt, and they're not doing very well. You know, you just play that game hot and cold when you were a kid, getting you closer to something, say, you're hot, you're hotter, oh, you're nuclear, you know. Um, the world's not, uh, they're, not even, they're, they're not even close. We know where the treasure um, is. Think of, all the, think of all the purveyors of treasure there are out there. We're about to enter a season of the year, which is a, um, a massive um, consumer fest uh, that we also call Christmas. Right, And so we're going to be barraged with advertisements, and we have been since the end of September, right? Um, that, that will scream to everybody in our culture, more, 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 more stuff, more things, more gifts, have more. And it's a lie. Think of all the things that purport to tell people, this is the something more you lack in your life. I, I go on my Facebook account, there's one woman after another drinking Shakeology. Shakeology, get this, you know, and there's... <laughs> Women on there with their before bikini pictures and their after. I don't want to see this. I don't want to know this. I don't want to drink that wretched drink. Um, you know, if I can just get my body um, looking uh, uh, all so hot, then, uh, then that's the something more. Turn on the radio. Buy gold. Buy gold. Gold worth. You know, gold this, gold that. You know, secure your money. Secure your body. You can listen to Joel Osteen. Um, um, it, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. A, a friend writes me, um, he's got a, a family just started coming to their church. they got like a seven-year-old child. It's a, a boy, seven-year-old little boy. The little boy says, I think I'm a girl. The parents are raising him now to, you know, supporting that notion that perhaps he is a girl. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Because people are so empty. And we've got it. We've got the treasure. So, there's our mission. Um, second, I want you to see in this uh, passage that the, the key to, um, to really um, ultimately apprehending the treasure is appraising its value. Both the poor man and the rich man realize the value of what they found, and they are determined to have it. So when you find the treasure, what do you do? You treasure it. That's what you do. When you find something value, uh, valuable, then, uh, then it takes a place of priority in your life. Um, so when you realize that Jesus is the something more your soul craves, that Jesus becomes the center of your life. Is he? Is he? Would your life uh, manifest that? Jesus becomes um, um, the center of how you spend your leisure time. Jesus becomes the center of how you spend your money. Jesus becomes the center of how you raise your kids. Jesus becomes the center of, of how you do marriage. Jesus becomes the center of how you care for your body. Jesus becomes the center of everything because he's God, because, um, because he's beautiful. Um, he becomes your true north. Got it? So um, let me ask this. Why, why is it that, that people, whether when Christ himself was here or now, can be so close to the treasure and yet... Um, and the treasure be before their eyes, and yet not see it as treasure, and, uh, and continue in their, their spiritual emptiness and their spiritual poverty. And I just suggest a couple things have, have sort of dimmed the luster of the treasure. 
And, and I want to spend a lot of time on the first, but one is the church, right? The church hampers um, the vision of people. When the unbeliever looks at the church, does it make his or her mouth water? Do they think, you know, there's, there's an emptiness in my life, I need something more, and those people have it. That's where I'm going to go to find the something more. But I think there's an even greater problem in our culture, and the greatest problem in our culture is prosperity. The greatest, you know, prosperity has hampered our vision because our wealth as a culture blinds us to our true spiritual condition. Jesus said it's very hard for rich people to get in the kingdom of God, right? I mean, he said it's easier for a camel to pass through what? The eye of a needle. Now, we don't even know what needles are anymore when it comes to sewing, but the eye of a needle is, uh, is smaller than a camel, right? <laughs> willing to go out on a limb and say that. Um, so Jesus says it's impossible. It is impossible. And it's amazing that we can read that in our North American churches, and we probably immediately think of, of somebody who lives in Beverly Hills or somebody who lives in Naples, Florida. It's you. It's me. We're the rich he's talking about. You can't live in North America and not realize you're the richest, not only the richest people in the world, you're the richest people who have ever lived in history. Nobody has ever had what we have. And Jesus said, with what we have, it is almost impossible to go to heaven. So it ought to have us begging all the time to, to say, God, please, you have to show me my desperate spiritual condition." Because I am going to be blind to it. There's no way I can't be. You've already told me that in the Bible. It is, it is impossible to see your deep neediness for Jesus when you have so much treasure. I mean, to get to heaven requires one thing. Bankruptcy. Utter helplessness. The only thing you need is need. Right? Help of the, this, this, this weekend in church, this, this kid came and sang this real um, modern rendition of help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. And I just get stuck on that line. Not help of the resourceful. Not help of the connected. Not help of those with an abundant 501, um, you know, ab- abundant retirement account. Not help of, uh, of, of people who have a great education and a master's degree. Not help of those who can pull themselves up by the bootstrap. Help of the helpless. Help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. It's hard to sing, just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. Sight, riches, healing of the mind. Yea, all I need in thee I find. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. It's hard, to, it's hard to sing that song. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. Yea, you know, all I need in thee I find. If we don't have any need. We don't have any need. The prayers in our church, when people in our church pray, your prayers in your small group. We don't pray missional prayers. We pray, um, God, uh, uh, almost all of our prayers have to do with physical health or adversity. Take my adversity away because I demand a life of comfort. Um, very part of part of, um, of, of apprehending the worth of the treasure is to realize our desperate condition. And only God can help uh, people have as much as we have and as much comfort. It is our desperate need. Uh, I'll give you an example. In, in, uh, we, have, we have three services in our church, and one's on Saturday night. And on Saturday night, there's these homeless dudes come. So there's like 20, 25 homeless from the homeless shelter um, come. And, and I'm going to say on, a, on, a, on this particular Saturday night service, we had 350 people there. And, um, and we had a healing uh, as a part of our service. We do a couple times a year. So people come forward to receive communion, and if they want to be anointed for physical healing, they can, they can um, be anointed in front. And that's, that's kind of not conventional for a lot of people. It feels kind of vulnerable. It feels kind of out there to present yourself. And anybody in the church can see you being anointed. And, um, and, and in our church that night, I, I want to I say that um, um, 15 people 
came forward, they all came for communion, most of them, but, you know, for healing, the healing and anointing, which I thought is really a great response in, in that one service. Fifteen people came to say, bringing profound need uh, and, and asking God to, to make them well. And you know what struck me as I was watching all this play out um, in the church? Was that of the 25 homeless guys there, 20 of them came. Fifteen out of the, say, 300 and some, you know, kind of our church people. Fifteen out of 300, which I thought was great. It really was great. But of the homeless, there were about 25, and 20 of them came. And I remember walking away from that service and say, you know, Jesus, you have to help me. Because you know what those guys have? They got need. They got nothing. They have nothing. And we're going to anoint people. They're going to be there. They're not going to miss the opportunity because they have got to have Jesus because they have nothing else. So, Got to appraise the treasure. Is Jesus your treasure? You won't help others find the treasure if you haven't found it yourself. And they're not going to be drawn to find it from you if you don't really appraise it as, uh, as precious. You know, what enthralls you? You know that word enthralls? Pretty cool word, right? A thrall was a slave. So what enslaves you? What, what are you smitten by? What has your affection? Everybody has something. We often say it, and and, uh, listen, if you live in central Florida, if we could get people in our church to to care about Jesus like they care about the Florida Gators. You go to football games, and what do people do? I mean, they show up early. They, let's move on. I'm the out-of-town guy. I can say this stuff. They, um, you know, they... Just watch people at a football game. Their whole body is engaged. Their heart is engaged. People weep when their teams um, lose. This little girl in our church, her dad's a Clemson fan. I'm a Miami fan. A couple weeks ago, she's saying, we beat you. I looked at her and said, what do you mean, we? You weren't on the field. We, 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 we sing. What makes, your, what makes your heart sing? The stock that your retirement portfolio is invested in goes up. Does that make your heart sing? I mean, what makes your heart sing? Um, is it, um, you know, a sports team? Some people it's a boyfriend. Maybe it's your grandkids. Maybe it's fishing. Maybe it's just yourself. When I was a kid, um, you know, I, I, I figured out I don't know that I should give everybody in this room this hint, but uh, it's a bit of romantic advice. When I was a kid, all you had to do to win the heart of, uh, of a girl, it wasn't that complicated, but, but you went out on a date, and, and every guy I knew's strategy was to have the 8-track or the cassette tape of the best of bread. And you just put that in, you'd play that, and the night went swimmingly from there. If you only knew how untrue that was of every dating attempt of mine in my life. But, you know, there's a song from that old, old album, I Would Give Anything I Own. Give up my life, my heart, my home, just to have you back again. The the treasure, the treasure, the pearl of great price. They would give anything to have it. The pearl merchant would give anything. The man who found the treasure in the field would give anything. What does it mean to be smitten by Jesus? Don't you want to make it the prayer of your heart? I want to love. I want to, I want to love you, Jesus. I want to be smitten with you. I want to have a heart for other people, but I know I'm not going to have a heart for other people if I don't, if I, if I don't even have a heart for you. If I'm not moved by you, you might know theology and you might know the Bible and you might know doctrine. And you know what? That's great. It's better than not knowing it. But are you smitten? Are you moved? You know? I had a guy come up to me recently after 
church and he rebuked me because I, I teach a new members class and he was in it. So he's a brand new guy in the church. He rebuked me because I didn't pray at the beginning of the class. He said, I got so mad, I walked out of the room and I went outside and I told Jesus I was sorry that he hadn't been invited in. And so I invited him in because you didn't. I said, do you really think he was stuck outside? <laughs> I said, you know, it's fascinating that um, I'm glad you're in the class. I said, because, um, I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad you're in the class because, you know, we, we divide everybody in the class into small groups. I said, you know, in your small group, maybe you didn't notice. But I said, the man who read Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, he's been a member here at our church probably for 12 years. But my wife told me, because she happened to come to class at night, and she sat in that little group. She said, you should have seen Jim. He tried to, he was the group leader. He's a member already. Everybody else are non-members. He couldn't read the parable without crying. He's, a, he's like a police officer. He's a tough, tough police officer. But he couldn't read the story of a wayward son and a father who runs out and welcomes him home without crying. What enthralls you? Um, so, got it? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a treasure, um, and, uh, and, and the treasure has to be appraised. And, and last of all, then, how, how do we apprehend the treasure? Um, when we find the treasure, when we find the pearl of great price, we sell everything. No sacrifice is too much. Citizenship in God's kingdom is just that valuable. So do you sell everything to get the love of God? No. God comes and he gives you his uh, love. It's unmerited favor. That's what grace means, right? Unmerited favor. You don't merit it. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You shouldn't have it, right? So you don't sell everything to get the love of God. You sell everything because you realize you've been the recipient of it. You realize you've been given what your heart craves, and uh, nobody deserved it least than you. Um, we, we, we sell everything because when you have the something more, um, you're free to sell everything. We sing all the time, don't we? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my what? My all. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. So what does that mean? What does that mean? They sold everything. Sold everything to get the pearl. They sold everything to get the field. What does that mean for us? Assuming that none of us are literally going to liquidate everything we have. So what does it mean? Well, how would it apply to our life? Well, here's, there's, there's, there's many applications, but here's just a few. It means you divest yourself of your claim to sovereignty. Okay? To sell everything means you, you, you divest yourself of the claim of ownership of your life. Right? I divest myself of my right. Um, you know, it's not unusual these days that people say, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm all in, but there are parts of the Bible that I just don't accept. You see, to, to, to sell everything means you divest yourself of the right to be the decider. You're not the decider of what's true and right and holy and pure and good. There is a God, and, uh, and he's told us those things. And you're not sovereign. He is. You're a creature. He's the creator. And, uh, and you yield uh, to his authority. So, you know, sovereignty over your money, sovereignty over your life, sovereignty um, over your circumstances. Um, you, do, you know, I, um, uh, you know, I, I love um, when Jesus um, said to Peter after they'd fished all night, throw your net on the other side. What if you worked all night in a job that you knew far more about it than the preacher, and the preacher showed up and said, why don't you go out and do it some more? It'll be successful this time. I know you had a terrible night, and you're totally unsuccessful. You know, you know, I mean, Peter had to sit there and say, I know fishing in my sleep. I know the fishing like the back of my hand. He's not a fisherman. 
go through my note bag, go through my net back in the water. I'm tired. We're already washing the nets. We're done. But you know what the Bible says? Peter said, because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will. I think it's lunacy. But because you say so, I will. So, so to sell all means you settle it. Yeah, you divest your claim of being God. Second, you divest yourself of the, of the comfort of conformity. You publicly identify with Jesus. You publicly identify with Jesus. That means you're going to love uh, when it hurts. That means you're going to be mocked or criticized. Particularly, uh, we know that that's going to happen more. It may be that your own children will call you a bigot and narrow-minded. Um, right? Um, and, uh, and, and, of course, the object is not to be a bigot, not to be narrow-minded. The object is to, to be loving, lovingly committed to um, the truth of God's word. And, uh, and our own people in our own families may um, find us detestable for that. So we divest ourselves of, of uh, having some of the people who love us the most in this world think well of us, right? That's what it means, because it's worth it. It's worth it. It's the something more. There was, a, there was a, a, a winter Olympian for the U.S. His name was David Wise. Got the biggest kick out of this guy. You know, they, they had those events in the last uh, Winter Olympics in Sochi. You remember, uh, like now in the Winter Olympics, you turn it on and they're doing stuff you've never seen anybody do in your life, and this is an Olympic event. You think, I'm going to go out and ski off my roof, and I'm going to get a gold medal. That'll be the next event. Um, so they were doing these, these moguls in the middle of these, going down these hills and doing these jumps, remember, with skis on and flying around and, and doing seven things. And, and remember their pants? Because these are like, dude. And, and remember their pants were falling all the way down right in midair and their spins and tricks. They're like holding their pants up with one um, hand. And, and I remember one guy like, you know, would like face plant. They would go way up in there, do all this stuff, come over and completely miss the landing and slam their face into the snow and, and finish out their thing and ski up at the end. And they're in 87th place. And uh, the announcer would say, so how do you evaluate that ride? He's like, dude, you know, because they've all been smoking pot since they left Colorado Springs, and, and they don't even know where they are. They don't even know where they are. That's, that's the, these guys, they don't care. They don't care who wins, you know. And, and so David Wise was not a, a, a highly regarded uh, guy in this particular event. I don't know, I don't even remember what they're called, the event. But, but he actually won. And when they, they asked, like, uh, people, why? Do you, why? What happened? I don't know, but, you know, it maybe have to do with his alternative lifestyle. I thought, how do you be alternative when you're already one of these dudes, you know? I mean, does it mean he lives in a commune? Does it mean he's a Rastafarian? He smokes, you know, um, peyote? Uh, I mean, he's transgender. What is, what is, what is alternative and, uh, and you know what the article said? I got the biggest kid. He has a uh, completely alternative lifestyle. He's married. <laughs> and, uh, and he doesn't party. He has a son. And, uh, and he's a Christian. And he's um, planning to be a youth director. There is the way forward, isn't it? There's the way forward. If you're a Christian... If you've discovered the treasure, um, then you're called an alternative lifestyle. You're alternative now. You are the radical. I tell people, want to be, want to be, want to be a radical Christian? Marry somebody and stay married to them for a long time. That's a radical Christian. So here's what does it mean to to, to sell all? It means to divest yourself of a life of ease. Divest yourself of a life of ease. You downsize. You restrain your consumption because you want God's kingdom to come, not your own. I was sitting at a wedding uh, a year or so ago at the reception afterwards, and this cute little couple sits down at the same table. I didn't, I didn't know them. I got to know them. The girl's just bubbling, and 
and she's like um, um, the children's ministry director at her church, and she's they're they're really young, and she's got like two kids, and they're really uh, three kids, and they're really little, and she's going on about all her life and activities, and and then she told me they're going to be foster parents, and they think they're getting like two foster kids within a couple weeks, and I'm just like looked at her and I said, why? I mean, your life is just jammed. Why? I mean, that, that's, that's, I mean, you got little kids already and that on top of everything else? And she just, she looked at me and she said, well, I didn't know being a Christian was supposed to be easy. <laughs> when my, um, when this young this young man who was dating my daughter called me up to ask if he could marry my daughter. Um, he said, um, you know, all the requisite words. And, uh, and, and I said, listen, it's really pretty simple, my response. Uh, if you take care of my daughter, um, we're, we're best friends for life. Uh, and, and if you don't, we're not. Um, pretty much the way it's going to work from here on out. And, um, and at that, his response is supposed to be relief, promises of doing that, and, and then considering to me to be a godlike figure in his life. <laughs> um, instead, he had the nerve to say, well, could I ask a question about what you mean by that? What does taking care of your daughter mean? He said, if I marry your daughter and we move to the worst neighborhood in town, a dangerous neighborhood where there's gangs and drugs, and he said, which is what I plan to do, will that be taking care of your daughter? And God gave me the ability to say words to him. I don't know that I believed. <laughs> but I said... If that's not what you do with your life, then you won't be taking care of my daughter. If you do anything else with your life, if you give yourself to North American consumption and waste your life on trivial things, that is what will harm the soul of my daughter and the soul of my grandchildren. No. If you move to the worst neighborhood in town, to live or even die for Jesus there, that is taking care of my daughter. Um, and they did, and they are. So, real quick and then I'm done, what would motivate us to do these? What would motivate us to divest ourselves? Well, very quickly, it's the beauty of Jesus. You, you want to think about the beauty of your Savior? He found, he found the treasure. You know that? Jesus found the treasure. Who? you and he gave up everything to have you can you imagine somebody treasuring you at all the beauty of Jesus that's enough that's enough to sell everything the urgency of the mission is another reason I didn't even cover the third parable it's called the parable of the net talks about how a net is thrown into the sea and gathers fish of every kind and then he pulled the net in. And the angels separate the good from the bad and the bad are thrown into the fiery furnace where they go into eternal damnation. So much is at stake. Um, the urgency of the mission. You know, everything we can must be sold for the war effort. We can't waste our lives fiddle-faddling around when people I go to a Christless eternity. And the, and the last um, reason to sell everything is the benefits. Because ultimately you give up nothing when you give up um, everything. You give up nothing when you give up everything because you gain the whole world. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. So, does your heart yearn for something more? I hope so.
It yearns for Jesus. He is the treasure. And when you have it, then you get the awesome calling of um, leading your family, friends, neighbors, coworkers on the treasure hunt. Because you know where it is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Redeemer Church. Thank you for people here on a, on a um, Friday night. And, uh, and I pray, um, Father, that, that this place will be a place where people meet you and people discover um, the pearl of great price that's worth selling all to have. Lord, in every church we pray first that you'd convert the, um, uh, the pastors, that you'd make us enthralled with you. And then you convert the members. And then, Lord, um, that would be um, such a scream that, that the, the unbelievers would just come in to watch it, to see, to see what's going on there. And they'll, and they'll get the treasure too. Would you do it here for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Ray. Um, one of the reasons that I was so excited for uh, Ray to come and speak to us is one of, my, one of my hopes and dreams for our church is that in 30 years or so, um, we'll, we'll have those kinds of stories of the things that God has done there uh, in his place uh, because we're people who realize uh, that uh, we have something, we have, we have a treasure to give away. I, I, I've always been struck by the story in Second Kings where a number of lepers came out into a battlefield uh, just hoping to find something to eat, and they, they found an empty. Uh, there where the, where the soldiers had been uh, in the night they had cleared out. The Lord had rooted them, and they had cleared out, and they came upon this massive treasure, and they thought, you know what, we can keep this all to ourselves and nobody will know. And then they say, no. That would be wrong because this is a day of good news. And were we to keep this to ourselves, uh, we would not be doing the right thing. This is, this is such good news, we must share it. And so this treasure that we hear about makes us a people who long to look to our city uh, as if we have something to give, as if we have something to share. We have been given a gospel that we are not to keep to ourselves, but one that we are to give away. And so part of our focus for this weekend is to be re-energized towards the mission, to be reimagined in it. But also to, to, to be reminded of the things that we're, we are doing, the people that we are partnering with, uh, and to make you aware of that in a greater way than you might have been otherwise. And so I want to tell you about a couple things before we, we wrap up tonight. We're going to take a few minutes to pray, too. Uh, we want to be a church for the city. Uh, that has been a desire of ours all along. And so we have both, both local and international partners in ministry. We're going to talk about some of the international stuff tomorrow, but tonight uh, one of our main partners is a crisis pregnancy center here in town, Life Choice, which Lauren Netterveld, who's one of our members, uh, works there, and, and a number of people in our church work there on some level or volunteer there, and, uh, and so they are, they are one of the, the, the places that we have sent a lot of people, uh, one of the places we try to pour a lot of resources, and so they've made a video for us tonight. Uh, Joe, you ready for that? You got that cued? And so I'd ask you to just watch this as we... Um, come to an end and start looking back there what's that yeah there it is um and and just just again uh just be aware of the the way that you have been a generous church and that we have tried to bless these people uh but are we ready now joe you think let's try it now and see if we can see what the ladies from life choice have to say to us i love seeing how girls lives are changed when they come in here letting them know we're gonna love them no matter what they do. I'm at Life Choice to help raise a brave generation of women. Any woman that walks into these doors feels welcomed, supported, and loved when she leaves here. They come in, in here a lot of times in tears with very sad looks on their face. And to watch them leave in an hour with a big smile or at least with hope in their hearts, that's what makes our work here so enjoyable. So we offer them pregnancy testing and ultrasound and peer counseling. It helped me a lot coming to Life Choice Pregnancy Center for the support. We also have a program called Earn While You Learn, teaching video series. There's prenatal, there's parenting. Learn more to become the mother that I should be. This is, it's, it's very low key, it's quiet, it's one-on-one. They can earn up to four baby bucks on each visit and they can spend those in the boutique that we have. 
One thing we always tell our girls when they come in, these services are offered at no cost to you. They are covered by individuals, businesses, churches, and the community who love you. I was a little bit confused and a lot of people are telling me that I should get an abortion. I didn't know I had options. And I've watched these girls as their eyes light up when they realize that is not their only option. You just have one thing in mind. Uh, and that's to, you know, to change minds and to give people hope. Because it's so important that these young ladies have an opportunity to make an informed decision. At that moment that she brought adoption option to my attention, you know, I started feeling less pressure, started a little bit more hope. There is life and grace in these options. It already takes a lot of courage for a girl to, to step forth. It was a sign that said confused, pregnant, and that's exactly how I was feeling. If we are able to open our doors five days a week, we're going to see double clients. We want to love and serve any woman that comes through our door. One vital part of our ministry right now is our Life Givers program, where we have monthly partners commit to donations every month of the year. And so, while it's not glamorous, we really need just money to keep the doors open. Couldn't have done it without these ladies here. We can open up a whole new world of just possibility and hope. Life Choice Pregnancy Center is a 501c3 organization. Donations are 100% tax deductible. Life is good. It's to be valued, and that includes people in crisis.